pastors here at the church and if you've ever met me outside of this context you've probably seen me with headphones on. I'm constantly, constantly, I've either got them around my neck where they're close to me or I've got them over my ears um, because I'm constantly listening to podcasts. It's pretty much all I do. I'm here for a little bit and then the rest of the time I'm listening to podcasts and if I could, if I could, if I could engineer my life so that I never need to interact with anyone, I would just be 24-7 Podcasts. I love podcasts. Are you getting the message? This is my message to you. I love podcasts. And there's some really good podcasts coming out at the moment. They're getting better and better, more and more kind of produced. And one of my uh, favorite things to do is listen to kind of um, public radio podcasts that tell the stories of ordinary people um, and the extraordinary things that happen to ordinary people. I was listening in July this year to Invisibilia, which is a NPR podcast, and it told the story of these eight people who uh, lived in who live in um, Washington D.C. and they were eight people in someone's backyard uh, late at night, just kind of enjoying each other, celebrating life. They were drinking uh, French wine and they were eating cheese and just enjoying life together. And I think it was one guy named Michael. He was standing in the backyard. Uh, his wife was next to him, his 14-year-old daughter was next to him on the other side, and he said at about 10 o'clock, uh, just as they were eating and drinking and chatting, he, he saw out of the corner of his eye an arm kind of extend between him and his wife, and connected to the arm was a hand, and connected to the hand was a gun. And there's a, a guy there about medium build, medium height, in a calm voice just said, uh, give me your money or I'm going to effing start shooting people. So obviously they were kind of shocked by this. Everything went very quiet. Everyone was staring at this guy holding a gun and they all realised at about the same time that they didn't have any money. Like no one had any money. They were just sitting in the backyard eating cheese and drinking wine and no one had any money. And so they were kind of scrambling with what to do. He started getting more agitated. He said, I'm going to start shooting people and he held the gun to this guy's wife's head and then moved it to his daughter's head. And so one of the women sort of tried to come up with something to um, distract him, and so she started to, like, chide him, started to guilt him, and said to him, what, what would your mother think if she was here? What would your mother think if she could see you doing this? And all it did was escalate the situation. He just said, I don't have an effing mother. And so everyone's kind of stood there just not knowing exactly what to do. The guy said he was pretty sure someone was going to get hurt, someone was going to get killed. And then a woman named Christina said to him, you know what, we're, just, we're here just celebrating together tonight. Why don't you take a glass of wine? And the guy who's describing it just said that everything flipped at that point. The episode's called Flipping the Script, which is like an Americanism for a a game-changing moment. And everything changed at that point. And suddenly, this this guy's whole demeanour changed. The look on his face changed. The atmosphere changed. 
And after a little while, just trying to suss out what was going on, he, he reached down and he picked up a glass and he took a, a drink. And he's like, man, that's really good wine. And then he reached down and he grabbed some cheese and nibbled on some cheese. And the tension's still there, right? Like it, no one knows exactly what's going on. And, and then after a little while, he just looked around at them and said, I think I've come to the wrong place tonight. And they were like, yeah, well, that can happen. (laughs) And then he took the gun and he dropped it in his pocket and just started drinking and eating with them. And after a little while longer, what seemed like an eternity, he just said, do you reckon I could get a hug? And this guy's wife went and gave him a hug and then there was another woman who gave him a hug and then he's like, do you, do you think we could have a group hug? And the guy said it was insane, it was, it was crazy, but they all just did it. They all just jumped in and gave him a, a great big hug and then he kind of just walked away back down the alleyway and they found the glass sitting next to the footpath later on. But it wasn't late until later that they found it because after he left they all just ran inside and were like, we can't believe what just happened. This is, and, and the dude said, the, the guy Michael said, he, at the time they were all just saying, this is a miracle. This is a miracle. I found out that psychologists call this phenomena um, non-complementary behaviour. Non-complementary behaviour, E, not I. Non-complementary behaviour. And, and what they say is, like, the most normal thing in the world is for our behaviour with toward one another to be complementary. Like, if I'm nice to you, you'll be nice to me. If I smile at you, you'll probably smile at me. If I'm aggressive towards you, you'll probably be aggressive towards me. Like, the other day, I think it was Friday, when I came uh, into the car park here to come into work, there was a guy coming around behind me in this massive four-wheel drive. He was flooring it behind me, and I don't know if he was looking at his phone, he he didn't know what was going on, because he didn't notice that I had slowed down to pull in here, and all I heard was a screeching of brakes, and then this huge, enormous car bearing down on my 1996 Corolla, filling up the the rear windscreen and then he slammed on the brakes and he's kind of skidding right up and, and landed right next to me like right next to me and I was like what is wrong with you and his response was just to yell at me and give me the finger and then drive off and what he was doing was just complimentary behavior I was I, I kind of said more than what I just told you that I said but my, in response to my aggression even though it was all his fault and I was an innocent party, his response was to be aggressive. But that's, that's complementary behavior. It's the most normal thing in the world. But non-complementary behavior is weird and hard and uncommon and powerful. It's powerful. Now, if you're married here tonight, you need to take some notes, right? non complimentary behavior can be your best friend. If you're in a situation that's escalating and becoming agitated, maybe there's some aggression involved, maybe there's some disappointment there, the best thing you can do, the most powerful thing you can do is rather than doing the natural complimentary behavior where you fight back is to actually respond with grace and understanding and kindness. And more often than not, it can short-circuit 
and otherwise hostile situation. Same is true for bar fights and any other situation you can be in that is fraught. Martin Luther King did this. This is one of the great historical examples, right? Civil rights movement in the US. African Americans being treated brutally, just despicable. And his response, unlike many of his contemporaries, was to maintain a strange kind of non-violent response. I've got a quote from him that describes exactly what I'm talking about. He said, non-violence is a powerful and just weapon. Do you get the irony? It is a weapon unique in history which cuts without wounding. It is a sword that heals. And the world was never the same. As soon as Martin Luther King Jr. and his cohort of non-violent protesters committed to that way and stayed committed to that way, the world would never be the same. America would never be the same. And Martin Luther King said himself repeatedly that his greatest inspiration for this kind of behaviour was his Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. The greatest exhibition, the greatest example of non-complementary behaviour was shown to us by God himself. It was demonstrated by God himself at Christmas. Here's the situation, right? Here's the situation. God has created the world in perfect rhythm and beauty and artistry where everything is in sync, everything is complementary, everything is beautiful, and then it gets broken, shattered, fractured. And the the creatures that he created in his image for relationship with him in perfect rhythm and harmony and beauty suddenly turn away from him They want to be their own gods. They rebel, they reject. And what's God's response to that? God's response to those creatures that he made, which are now his enemies, is not the one that you would expect. Most of the stories, most of the myths throughout human history that have been developed by different cultures in different, uh, in, in different uh, parts of the world, in different eras, have the gods up on high just waiting to crush the people that have rebelled against them. And yet God looks at his enemies and his response is to rescue them. That's not the road that I would have gone down if I was him. I had a terrible morning this morning, right? Let me just have some therapy with you for a moment. I had a terrible morning this morning because a year ago at this time, we bought our kids, I've got a a five-year-old and a three-year-old, we bought them a trampoline, this amazing big trampoline, and it is amazing, and we've got good use out of it. However, what it really is, Secondarily, it's a trampoline, but its primary use is just to be a massive 
spider colony, right? Which is the worst thing that anything can be, right, on the face of the earth, as far as I'm concerned. I've always hated spiders. Right now, I'm okay with big, big huntsman-type ones. I woke up a few years ago with one on my chest, like on my bare chest, just looking at me, taunting me. And since then, I've been okay with them. It was like a, a bit of a moment, right, for me to get over this. But the, bl- the, like the black, big, fat ones, like the orb spiders, and the, I just hate them with a, with a passion. They're my, they're my truest nemesis. They're my enemies. They've, they've rebelled against me. They want me dead, right? And, and in order to... Right, so last night we said to our kids that they could have a Christmas present early. And so... Uh, they open up this Christmas present, and I never know what they're going to open up, right? Like, at all. My wife does all of that, and so it's kind of like a surprise for me too. And so they open it up, and it was a, a basketball ring that fits on the trampoline, which is fine, except you've got to dissemble half the trampoline to put it up. And so I did that this morning, and it was just pouring out with these, these demonic spiders, it was pouring out with them. Some of them were big, some of them were little. They were all disgusting, terrible, terrible things. How did I get onto this? Right, so, now here's the thing. In a very, very real sense, that is exactly how God should feel about us when he sees us. He should see us as his enemies. He should see us as a threat to his sovereignty that should be squashed, sprayed, beaten, lit on fire, like whatever, that, that's how he should view us, how I view those spiders. Like every time I saw one, I promise you, not one of them is alive to this hour. Every single one was killed brutally and immediately. And that's exactly how God should treat us. That's how we deserve to be treated. That's how he should view us. We are his enemies. We are the spiders that should be crushed under his feet. And yet, and yet, we come to Christmas and we learn that instead of God squashing us, he becomes one of us. And he's, he enters into human history, as we saw in that video, in the most humble of circumstances. In the Middle East, in the first century, in a feeding trough. No fanfare, no trumpets, no royal procession in a shed. It's so non-complimentary. It's so unexpected. And that's what makes it so powerful. That God would stoop and humble himself to become one of us. Now most of us, the last three minutes when I was talking about that, most of us tuned out because we know that already. We've, like, we've seen this picture over here a thousand times. We understand he's in a trough. But we don't really get it. I don't think many of us have come to terms with the, just the cataclysmic event that Christmas is. That God, the eternal God, who made the mother that gave birth to him would humble himself to become one of us. To most other cultures, most other religions around the world, that is insane. They would reject Christianity just on that basis, that God would come into human history. It's laughable. 
that he would die is clinically insane. But he does. And we heard it in the reading that Simon read for us, right? Philippians chapter 2, it's like one of the earliest creeds of Christendom, right? It, it was written by Paul to explain just this very fact that God became man and that it was extraordinary. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 to 7, he says, In your relationships with one another, church, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. That is, he made himself a baby. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. He said, what he's saying is this. He, he, didn't, he didn't think that, that his power was something to be used to his advantage, to crush us. Instead, he emptied himself of the, that power. He emptied himself of his independent exercise of his will in order to save us. The Apostle John, one of Jesus' best friends, in John chapter 1, verse 1, he said, um, he puts it like this. John 1, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then verse 14, he said, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So what you need to understand, again, we don't get it in this context. In, in Greek first century thought, the, especially in Stoic philosophy, the idea was that the Word, the Logos, this Word is the force that holds the universe together. It's the force that determines every end. It's the force that creates and sustains all things. That was known as the Logos, the Word. And so John, writing to a Greek audience, says, listen, that logos, that word that you know, you know, takes care of everything, creates everything, keeps everything in balance, that's Jesus. And he was in the beginning, and he made everything, right? And all the Greeks are saying, yeah, we know this, we know this. The word, yeah, we, we understand, it's the word that does that. And then John says, and the word became flesh, and it just blows them up. They're like, no frigging way. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us? What? This blows their minds. The Word became a baby in a trough in the midst of a volatile political situation where tyrants and kings and emperors were vying for authority and people were being put to the sword. In that context, in that mess, the Word becomes flesh? My God. John's like, yeah, I know. So God does this incredible, non-complementary thing when he comes into human history as a baby in a manger at Christmas time. And the story doesn't stop there because it continues. This humiliation of God himself, the word becoming flesh, continues from his birth through to his death. So the next verse in Philippians chapter 2, he says, 
In verse 8, he is being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Even that death, that most humiliating death, that most excruciating death. The word excruciating means out of the cross. They invented a new word to describe the pain of execution by crucifixion. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He's like, are you getting this? Are you seeing the radical love of God for each one of us? And Martin Luther King did an amazing thing. But he said himself it was nothing, nothing compared to the gracious response of God in his son Jesus Christ. So God has every right to squash us like spiders. We are his enemies. We have rebelled against him and yet he condescends to us. He becomes one of us. While we are his enemies, he comes into human history and he dies on a cross in our place. In Romans 5, Paul says it like this, verse 8 and verse 10. It says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And verse 10, for if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? While we were his enemies, while we were sinners, while we were deserving of his wrath, his anger, his condemnation, his judgment, he died for us. That's the biggest flip the script there ever has been. So this changes, or at least this shapes how we relate to God, right? This should shape how we relate to God as people. Remember that story that I told you at the beginning? from the podcast, the first thing they did when they realized he wanted money and they didn't have any, the first thing they did was try and guilt him into behaving. What if your mum was here, right? And all it did was escalate the situation and make him more angry and more volatile. And some of us are here tonight and we think that God is relating to us like that. We think that God wants to to guilt us into being good boys and girls. It's, by the way, exactly the ploy that Santa uses, right? And we think that God relates to us like Santa does. God help us. No. God doesn't relate to us on the basis of guilt. If you're here tonight because you feel guilty and you feel like maybe, maybe by being here you can get God to start liking you again, then you're, you're, you're barking up the wrong tree. God doesn't want to guilt us into his good graces. God God wants us to sit down with him and have a glass of wine. In Jesus, because of Jesus, because of his birth, because of his death, we can relate to God in that way. We can relate to God on the basis of grace. Rather than being guilted into his good books, we can sit down with him and share a glass of wine. And friends, that's exactly what we're about to do. We're going to share the Lord's Supper together now.
which is sharing bread and sharing wine at God's invitation on the basis of grace. It's a beautiful thing because we don't eat bread and drink wine so that God will like us more or maybe even love us one day. We don't do it on the basis of guilt, but we do it on the basis of grace. He invites us to know him, to love him, to share him. And so as we share this, we remember Jesus' body and blood that was broken and shed for us. We remember all that he did, the lengths that he went to, to make us his friends, to make us his sons and his daughters, adopted into his family. So, if you are here tonight on that basis, on the basis of grace, if you've accepted his invitation to be one of his children, then we encourage you, please come and share this meal with us.